Okay, welcome to Coaching Caffeine and Comedy, and I'm your host, Haley Kobza. If this is your first time listening in, thank you. You can keep up to date with this podcast on Instagram and Twitter, and if you're over the age of 30, Facebook. If you want to know who I am, which you're probably here just to listen to the legend himself, I will add that I'm the head volleyball coach at McCook Community College in McCook, Nebraska. I enjoy many things in life, but by far the top two qualities and titles that I hold are being a mom and a coach. I also enjoy listening to others and having a solid laugh. Now, when I started thinking about this podcast, I came up with a list of like my dream guests. And so every Friday, I'll reach out to one. Perfectly okay with no response or a solid no, because you never know. Somebody could possibly say yes. So at the top of my list is who we get to hear from today. So I think one of my reasonings also for doing this podcast is because he has a podcast as well. Um, his resume is one for the record books, but to name a few, he led the Cornhuskers to their first NCAA Volleyball National Championship. He appeared in the 21, he appeared in 21 Big 8 and Big 12 Conference Championships in his 23 seasons as the head coach at Nebraska. He has wrote three books and has a podcast, so we're definitely going to plug that one in there, and that's Inside the Coaching Mind with Terry Pettit. But anyways, enough about me. Let me welcome our guest for today, Coach Terry Pettit. How's it going, Coach? Uh, good morning, Haley. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm super excited. Try not to fangirl too much. <laughs> well, I, I always enjoy talking about uh, coaching with with other coaches. I, this is this is so fun. So, um, Terry, I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, but we do a little warm up uh, just to get the, you know get everything going, get the brains flowing. So how it's going to go, it's going to be a fill in the blank. So I'm going to say something, I'll stop, and then you fill in the blank. So like, for example, go big. Red. Good. Okay. So this is easy. You got this. All right. No bees. No. No bees. No bees. No what? Go there. (laughs) Okay. Get in the zone. Get in the zone. Uh, can be hard it can be um, uh-huh um yeah you have to learn to win when you're not in the zone yes good practice makes um perfect practice makes perfect good better than the day before good stop drop and platform uh Ooh. To the target. Good. Okay. Never have I ever. Uh, given up on a kid. Ooh, this is this is you're doing really good. I wish I had a whirlpool. <laughs> I'm the best at evaluating. Um, movement okay there's no place like well there's no place like like nebraska there's no place like my original home in northwest indiana there's no place um, like where i live now uh, above a ravine where there is a family of foxes who have eight kids (laughs) that that's living in nature and yeah, it's 
last one. You're never too old to. Well, <laughs> you are too old to try and scissor across the fence. Oh, especially if it's barbed wire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You, I, I think you're, you're never too old to learn, certainly. Good. That's really good. Okay. So, Coach, before we kind of get into the deep, deep and like the deep in the, into coaching, what's one thing that you wish you would have known before you even started coaching? Boy, there what, are hundreds of things. I, I was going to say, uh, there's probably multiple, but like, what is one thing, you know, for, because there are newer coaches out there that you wish you would have. Well, co coaching is, is um, less about X's and O's and technical things and more about working with people. How did you get into coaching? It was all, you said kind of by accident. It was by accident. Uh, the, my first job was at a, um, actually the oldest junior college in the country. I think it was chartered uh, shortly after Columbus hit ground. Uh, it was... I, I, I thought the, that was the, McCook Community College. <laughs> no, uh, no, McCook, Nebraska is a young, a young state. I, um, and I actually, in the, in the first national championship I ever coached, I, I coached against a team from North Platte. Oh, really? Uh, okay. In a junior college championship. But the president had noticed in my resume that I had played volleyball. I played for Jim Coleman, who was the 1968 Olympic coach, and he coached a club team in Chicago. I was introduced to the sport there, and uh, he saw that and asked me to coach the team. I didn't know it was a women's team because there, there had been women's college sport. So when I got to the meeting, there were uh, 25 women there who had never played volleyball and were waiting, waiting to be on a team. So you went to Indiana, right, for college? Uh, yes, undergraduate in okay. Indiana, graduate school in Arkansas okay. in creative writing, poetry, awesome. and then uh, began teaching in, at Lewisburg which is about an hour north of Raleigh in North Carolina. And, and that was in 1974. And so did you, did you play volleyball then in college or like what, like how did you even get to the, the how much did you know volleyball when you started coaching? You know, I didn't know a lot, but I, I knew better than maybe more than most <laughs> in because, um, playing with that club team in Chicago with an Olympic coach, just practicing. And I, I was probably the least experienced player on the team. Um, but there were several coaches that came out of that program. Oh. Um, uh, Jerry Angle coached at Northwestern, Terry Laskavich coached at Pacific and became an Olympic coach. Mick Haley coached at Texas and became an Olympic coach. And wait, so and, you, uh, and you guys were all on the same club team? all in the same club. Oh, team. that's awesome. And, that's, and that's cool. They were much better players and more experienced players than I was because some of them had played in college. Mick had played at, uh, at ball state. Um, but, and we had several teams, but there were, I, I would guess there were probably 35, uh, men on that club team. And 
so when Title IX came in, there there were all these volleyball teams that needed coaches. So if you had any experience, it put you uh, uh, ahead of other people. I should mention that uh, 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 Ruth Nelson was was part of that group. She was uh, there was a women's program there as well, and she went on to coach at Houston and Iowa and is still very active today with young people. So um, the, the volleyball community was very small then, but very tight. I mean, if anybody had played or was involved in with volleyball, particularly in the Midwest, uh, you knew, you knew of them. So with like, you, I mean, you coach with all, do you guys still co- talk today? Like you, Mick, Terry, is that like a conversation? Do you guys have a group chat or anything? <laughs> no, uh, Mick, uh, well, Terry, Terry runs a, a podcast with uh, John Dunning and Russ Rose and Mick runs a podcast with Ruth Nelson and Bob Bertucci, Brian Gimbalero. So we've, we've been on each other's podcasts and, of course, if if we uh, end up going to the Final Four, we, you know, we we will have conversations with each other. Awesome. But uh, awesome. you know, nowadays it's much easier to keep track of people um, on the internet and uh, Facebook and Twitter and so forth. So, yeah, for sure, oh. for sure. So you coached there, and then what ended up bringing you to Nebraska? Well, I. My, motiv- my motivation was that I really wanted to move on to a, a four-year liberal arts school. And so I was uh, looking at schools in North Carolina like High Point and Guilford and um, Paul Sandiford, who is the women's basketball coach, handed me a flyer that was actually in the trash can uh, about the University of Nebraska. And I-, I couldn't have told you exactly where Nebraska was. Uh, I, I knew it was west of Chicago, but I, I don't know that I could have named the states surrounding it. And I sent a letter off and they asked me to interview, but uh, I basically had to drive from North Carolina to Lincoln to do the interview. Uh, I don't think I was their first choice, but the uh, the interview was very interesting in that I ran a, a an hour practice with five or six women who were there during the summer. And uh, I thought it was at the time a kind of a brilliant way to, to conduct an interview because, uh, because sport was just beginning for women. I think the thing you needed to evaluate the most was did this person, could this person teach the sport? Were they familiar with it? And uh, so I went back to my home in, in Crown Point, Indiana, and waited. They offered me the job, and I took a couple days to think about it uh, because it meant I would be leaving uh, teaching English, which, is, which was my, um, what I was really trained to do. And so uh, I thought I would probably coach for three or four years and then and then begin looking for a job at a liberal arts college. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So I feel, you know, you're 
very liberal arts and stuff. And so I, I know for sure that when you went into Nebraska, you probably had a f- coaching philosophy, I'm assuming. Um, what was your mindset going into that program? Like what was like your main goals and what were your thoughts and aspirations for that program going into it? Especially thinking just that you were whole, only going to be there for a few few years. Well, my, my goal was to survive. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it uh, You know, people talk about, uh, Nancy, Nancy Grant Colson, who was on that first team, I talked about my vision. I, when I first got there, my vision didn't go beyond tomorrow. It was, um, I knew I had to win, uh, to, to keep a job. We just had a, uh, a child, uh, or late in that first season, we had a, a child, Catherine, who now, um, uh, works for United States green building and also coached high school volleyball last year. So it was a matter of uh, not wanting being competitive enough to not want to lose my job. And that meant uh, being very competitive right off the bat. And, uh, but my, 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 I guess the tools that I had for coaching came from two people. They came from my father who, again, was a baseball coach and baseball is a great baseball or softball are great sports to come up with coaching in because they're situational. Uh, the, the situation changes with every pitch. If you're into, into baseball, you understand that where the players are positioned when the count is uh, 0 and 2 is different than when the count is uh, 2 and 0. And um, so that that prepared me for attention to detail. There was a basketball coach named Enid Drake at, at uh, Lewisburg, and I thought he was old at the time. He was in his early 40s. He'd played minor league baseball, but he was a basketball coach. And that, my three years there, anytime I had a, something I didn't understand about coaching, I went into his office and he uh, he had a spittoon under his desk, and he chewed tobacco. And I would ask him a question, and he would he never jumped to an answer. It would usually take uh, at least 35, 45 seconds, and then he would say something that was very wise, and and I would trot back out the door and apply it to what I was doing. Um, when I was at Nebraska, I was fortunate to have. Um, someone there who mentored me through some difficult times. His name was Glenn Potter. He taught in the physical education department. He'd been the men's basketball coach at BYU. And I think um, uh, when, during some of the darkest moments of my first three or four years where I wasn't sure uh, maybe where I was headed or where the program was headed, he provided, uh, he kind of, reassured me and and gave me the confidence to keep moving forward Uh, so it's uh, those things are always hidden they're under the water but you can't really um, have a chance i think unless you have people that are nudging you uh, back on course i wholeheartedly agree it's the people behind the scenes that they may not be on your roster or even on your coaching list. I'm, they do go a long ways. Um, well, that's, that's awesome. Do, uh, Potter, Glenn Potter, is he's 
Do you still speak with him or where is he now? You know, I haven't in a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought of that when you asked the question. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but but uh, uh, I need to do that. I need to know that he that he how important he was in keeping me in in the profession. Mm -hmm. I think that well off topic on myself, but that was one of my new year's resolutions is to make sure like this year that everybody that has affected me, whether it be coaching life or whatever, that they know that I am thankful for them. So I do, I write, I write at least one card every week and it could be to somebody I've never spoke or I haven't spoke to forever, but you know, I feel like in today's world and with COVID and everything, you never, you're never guaranteed tomorrow. So you always got to reach out to those people. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that's a that's a, uh, a healthy habit to have. Yeah. And it works on my writing because <laughs> not a lot of people write anymore. So. Um, so, OK, just kind of to get into some fun, light moments here. Did you ever have any moments uh, when like you're coaching and your players were doing something and you were just like, what are these ladies doing like this? We don't practice this. Any of those kind of moments, you probably have had a few, but that made you question, like, why well, are you coaching? Yeah. <laughs> I think early on it was, it might've been more things off the court. That oh, I, for sure. That I didn't understand. Uh, on the court, for the most part, in, in competition, we got what we saw in practice. Mm -hmm. So uh, very rarely saw something in in competition that, uh, we hadn't seen in, in practice, but off the court, um, uh, I came from a, a pretty uh, conservative background and I don't mean politically. I mean, a a family that was, uh, pretty disciplined. And so when there were, there was behavior that was, uh, different might be, uh, somebody smoking marijuana or somebody uh, doing something I needed to uh, see that it wasn't the end of the world uh, or that 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 person needed to be uh, jettisoned that there were ways of dealing with it or it wasn't an indication that I wasn't uh, a good coach it was uh, you know in, in coaching I think particularly with inexperienced players um, you, you almost have to imagine anything that could possibly happen you need to address. So it, it, you might think, well, all I need to tell them is to stay hydrated, <laughs> but you probably need to say you need to be hydrated in the morning. You need to be hydrated in the afternoon, have to be hydrated in practice, have to be hydrated after the game, because a lot of the times the message, um, overall doesn't, they, they don't, uh, they don't decode it. And, uh, you know, so once, uh, for example, with the marijuana, once I dealt with it, that wasn't an issue anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, and the team, the, the culture of the team really hadn't been established. Nebraska had volleyball two years before I got there. Uh, there was large transition. A lot of those players only played one or two years and their eligibility was up. Um, so once you have a culture and, and a culture really is defined by decisions and behaviors, what are the decisions and behaviors that give us the best chance to be competitive? 
once those are established, and uh, then it begins to kind of purr like a, a well-oiled machine. And, and so your energy can go toward other things. Uh, they can go toward thinking about what a player needs to do to pass the ball better or attack the ball better. But um, you, you have to have, have to, have to make those uh, decisions about what your culture is going to be. And a team and a program kind of grows into that culture. It doesn't happen just overnight. In other words, you just don't walk in with a series of rules. You, you have to live with each other for a while and understand what the challenges are for those people. They have to, you, the, um, the motivations have to become aligned and everybody needs to be working toward the same thing. When you inherit a program that doesn't have that, it's, uh, people are gonna be, have all different types of motivations. They're gonna have all different types of behaviors. One of a coach has a job of outlining where we're going and how we're going to get there, what the expectations are. And um, that rarely happens in just one season. Uh, certainly by the, by the third season, um, if you know that you, you should all be rowing in the same direction. Yes, agreed. Um, so just out of curiosity, because we're going to start talking about some of the books that you've wrote, but is there a coach that you would be interested in reading a book that they wrote? Like, is there a coach out there that you think should maybe write a book that would be really interesting? Well, they, they may have written the books. I'm interested in, um, in the coach of the uh, Golden State Warriors. Okay. And I'm trying to think, think of his name right now, but, uh, uh, and uh, Popovich, who's the coach of the um, San Antonio Spurs. Greg Popovich grew up in the a community next to us, and he and my brother were uh, probably the strongest basketball players in the area. And uh, Popovich went to the Air Force Academy and hosted my brother. When my brother was making official visits, my brother went, ended up going to Valparaiso. Then Popovich became, over time, maybe the best coach in the NBA. And he has done some very interesting things with his team um, around uh, dining and eating and drinking. And, and he believes that if a, a team uh, uh, shares dinner together as much as possible, that you that you uh, you bond in a different way, so I don't. I would love to have him as a as a podcast guest and and hope to someday because I know people that have access to him. Mm -hmm. um, the other the other coach that I mentioned, uh, Steve Kerr, um, played for Arizona, and his his father I believe was a diplomat that was murdered. Oh wow! And while Steve Steve was playing for Arizona, played at Arizona State, and the Arizona State fans mocked him during the game for having his father murdered. It was one of the most horrific fan responses I've ever seen. And and I, I wanted to talk with him about how, about moving through that 
But also, if you watch the Warriors play, they they emulate the Spurs in many ways. They they play uh, team basketball. It's uh, uh, even though they may have the best three point shooter that the game has ever had, um, he doesn't force the shots. They the the ball is moved around, and that's an aspect that I like to see in in every sport, and would love to have a, a conversation with Steve Kerr. Uh, uh, Mary Jo Pepler is another coach I would like. Mary Jo was probably the best women's volleyball player in the United States for a couple of decades, was named one of the best five, six players in the world in the uh, early 70s, uh, coached at Utah State, won a national championship, and uh, was a very creative thinker. Um, so, so I don't know that whether she's written a book, but I certainly would love to have the conversation with her. Um, so, but we have, we have contemporary coaches as well. Uh, I think Craig Skinner has done some wonderful things at Kentucky. I don't know Danny Busboom who played at Nebraska well, although she was in my camps and I can remember pulling her aside when she was in junior high and, and saying to her that someday she would play at Nebraska. But uh, I, I love what she's done at, uh, at Louisville. And, uh, and I've had a podcast with her, but I haven't sat down with her and really talked in uh, intimate detail about certain decisions. And um, so those, those would be things. But there are people, there are people in every profession that I would find interesting to talk to talk to and I don't I don't know that you have to always talk to a uh, a volleyball coach it can be somebody in acting somebody in in uh, a governor or uh, a firefighter or a anybody has to has to make decisions uh, usually in some type of community or team and you can learn from them mm-hmm Agreed. Yeah, I've, I've really got a really big interest now in reading just more books about individuals because it's it's a real story and everybody has their own story and you always can learn something from everybody. Um, sure. So you have uh, three books, correct? Two books on coaching and then one book in poetry, right? Correct. Okay. So, um, awesome books. That's actually how I got started, uh, Coach, with like just like really diving into you. My mom, I, she must've heard you speak somewhere and she bought me a book when I was in college and it was the, your book, a fresh season. And mm -hmm. you, you even signed it and she sent it to me and she's like, you're going to love this. And so I read it and I, that this is like, right when I was like kind of thinking about going into coaching and that's when I was like, I, this, this is such a good book. And, um, actually every coach that I've ever like worked with, I ended up buying them one of these books. So um, so a fresh season, was this your first book that you wrote? No, Ta talent and the secret life of teams okay. was the first one. Um, and, uh, go. and Fre a fresh season was the second. And then, a, a trust in the river, a book on of selected poems mm -hmm. was the third. And it, when I was coaching, I still wrote, um, I, I didn't have the energy or the time to send things out at that, at that point, or at maybe edit them. So when I left coaching, I had a lot of 
a lot of material. I also, when I left coaching, I became the coach advocate at Nebraska and, and was in a role where I could mentor coaches. And uh, so I thought about, I, you know, as I, as I went around to different practices, as I went to Rhonda Ravel's softball practice or John Walker's soccer practice, I could, I could see different patterns, like what separates, what se separates exceptional coaches from good coaches and began thinking along those lines. Um, it's kind of like as a, a volleyball coach evolves, initially you begin with fundamentals and how do I teach fundamentals? But it moves on from that to systems and then it moves on from that to adjustments. Then it moves on from that to the process of coaching. And most of my energy and most of my writing has to do with the process of coaching, which is how do I get a group of people to do what they don't want to do? Uh, how, how do I get a group of people to, uh, who have different motivations to, to set aside some individual goals for the sake uh, of a larger group? And, um, you know, that's, that's the development of a coach. And when people get into coaching, uh, they're attracted to what happens between three and five in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. They're attracted to, man, coaching is, is practice. Uh, but it, it really is the other uh, 22 hours in the day beyond that. Uh, that take place before practice or after practice or after games or understanding how to evaluate talent or how to motivate talent. Um, and, it, and those things are really what separate, I think, the exceptional coach from the good coach. I think if you work at it, you can understand the fundamentals of playing, of, of coaching volleyball in three to five years. But I think the other things, uh, uh, unless, you're, unless you're really gifted, take longer to, uh, longer to, to develop. And you have to get out of your own way. You have to, uh, I said when I came to Nebraska, it was about survival. Well, you can't coach that way for 25 years. You, at some point, it's not about you, but it can't be not about you until you have enough success that you have the confidence to give your focus to other things. Yeah, I, sorry, I forgot. I was. I'm just listening. I feel like I'm listening to a podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> great. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Wow. Um. You have so much knowledge. So, and. Going back to your A Fresh Season book, one, I'm just, they're both really great. And A Fresh Season, it was wrote like with a, like a really light vibe to it. It was like kind of like dry comedy in there, I felt like. Uh, your chapters, like the Longhorn Limousine and the Barking in the Arena. Uh, I, right. I was like going through my book and I have those two tabbed. And then the letter at the front. And I think that was like the big thing. And I kind of talked to you about that earlier and you said they actually didn't write that. The, what was it? The during the letter to parents I, of I, perspective, a recruit. Yeah. I think I probably, since that's in the second book, 
I probably wrote that around 2010 after I was out of coaching and, and, um, you know, I, 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 I'm making a point in that, you know, that letter, oh. that letter is not just to the, to parents, it's to coaches. Yep. It's to, it's to how coaches need to educate parents mm -hmm. because, um, if you, if you, uh, knocked on the door and had a conversation with parents, they would agree with 99% of what you said about how you're going to treat their daughter, how you're going to coach their daughter or their son. But under stress, they become parents. And so when their daughter is stressed, they're, they're, they respond emotionally rather than their commitment to allowing her to work through things. And that's the same with players, mm -hmm. but, but you get those players and for a couple hours every day to practice that, to practice working through things. The parents only get that when they get the phone call once a week or once a semester where their daughter's world is falling apart or so she feels. So if we establish the ground rules beforehand and say that alert parents that look nobody gets through this without having uh, uh you know if, if it's like you're on a kayak nobody gets down the river without going through some rapids and your daughter's going to have rapids and when that happens you need to stay the course so that when you don't stay the course i can come back and say i warned you about this you know, I, 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 I told you about this, you committed to this. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, it's a way of alerting them, but really alerting coaches that this is going to happen. And, um, because what, when we agree to a contract, when we commit to something, we're doing it with a certain part of our brain, you know, the, the part that is rational, but the uh, the dark night of the soul comes from emotions, and uh, you have to work with players so they don't respond emotionally to tough situations in a match, or maybe there's a situation where they lose their starting starting role. How how are they going to respond to that? I'm not sure that you learn how to respond to that until it's happened to you. Um, very few athletes go through where everything they want happens. They, they may come in and they see themselves as a, a shortstop and they end up at second base. They may come in as a second baseman and find out that they're a relief pitcher. Um, nobody gets everything they want. At least we hope that because you only get stronger when with the number of things you work through. So therefore, when I'm recruiting someone, I'm interested in what they've had to work through. If their parents have made all their decisions, if their parents haven't allowed them to have a part-time job, if their parents haven't, um, instead of running to the, to the school principal, have encouraged their son or daughter to go to the principal and talk about something or talk 
with something about the teacher, they're less likely to uh, embrace what I'm going to present to them. So anytime it came down to a choice between two players for me to offer a scholarship to, I would offer the scholarship to the one who'd have had to overcome the most to get there. And unfortunately, there are a lot of parents today that are working very hard to prevent their children from overcoming anything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I'm trying to think. So you, you also wrote um, the other book, Talent and the Secret Life of Teens, which you said was your first book. What, and you wrote that, that was the, what was your like theories and thoughts on that when you read, wrote that book? Basically, was it you going around and seeing all coaches and then putting that in there? Well, I think the, the books are, are similar. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think how I think about things, you mentioned story, uh, that there's an old Hebrew saying, what's truer than true. The answer is story. Uh, so the, the advantage of a story is that it can apply to every situation. Um, I know I've presented somewhere and had a woman run, run up to me and say, I can tell uh, you're a devout Christian. And somebody else come up and say, I can tell that you, you've had a background in the liberal of arts. In other words, they've taken the story and applied it to their own framework. And uh, a, a story allows someone to work things out, to, to apply it to their own situation. Uh, as opposed to a litany of rules and saying, you must do this, you must do this. There are times that, that we need rules. Right? We don't want a three-year-old chasing a ball into the street. You know? And so we, uh, we, we jump into parent mode and say, thou shalt not do that. But so much of the time, um, things are more complex than that. And you know, how a setter is going to relate to different players on a team that she needs to uh, make decisions with. Um, I have to encourage her there, but I can't just hand her, I can't hand her a set of rules that are going to apply to every situation because she's going to be evaluating the player. Should I, should I set Kate in this situation? Uh, well, the situation says she's over the smallest blocker, but as a setter, I also know she's not handling things right now. So what's the rule that applies to that? Well, the, the setter has to come to a decision mm -hmm. and live with the decision. Uh, so, you know, leadership is a, a lot uh, messier than we think it is. It, it also... I, it also applies to people that aren't in leadership positions. So if you have a great team, you have a community of leaders. If, if, uh, if you walk through the living room of your home and there's a piece of paper on the floor, you'll stop to pick it up. Uh, we, you would hope that everybody in your family stops to pick it up. That's a leadership decision. You're making a decision that for the betterment of your family, where 
you as a coach, I moved through directing to coaching to collaborating with the people that I'm working with. But I have to teach them how to do that. It, it's um, and it, and it's it's not easy, but it's a lot of fun. Yep. And it, it sometimes means when a when a player comes into the office and and they're frustrated with something, not telling them exactly what to do, but but basically sharing with them what they what they're what they're saying. At other times, it may it might be, um, you know, we, for example, one of the things we think about leadership is that it's holding other people accountable. Well, that that is a sign of leadership, but there's a hundred other things that come before that. But when you have a championship team, somebody on the team, a core group of players, needs to hold people accountable other than the coaching staff. And if you're in a position of leadership, like a setter, you might not have the personality that wants to do that. So you have to be trained how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, people have to do things that they're not emotionally comfortable with. And, um, you know, the, the best example that we had at Nebraska was, was Christy Johnson, who was not, that didn't fit her personality, but over a, but over the two years that she wasn't a setter, the starting setter, the three years actually, we worked on that. So when she became the starting setter, she embraced that role. But it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have been working on it. Uh, you have a you have an even bigger challenge because your turnover, uh, you, you're losing half your squad every year. You're, you're losing your most experienced players every year. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to really uh, work hard at that. I, I'm a, a fan of community college, junior college players, because most of them have had to overcome things to get where they're at. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was a junior college coach. McKaylee was a junior college coach. Ray Bouchard, the head coach at Kansas, um, you know, it was a great place for me to go to learn my craft. If I had gone uh, straight to Nebraska, I, I certainly would have failed. If I hadn't had the opportunity to, to learn in that situation. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you said, coaching is way more than that three to five time in the afternoon. It, it takes a lot. I kind of a fun story. I, I went and I heard you speak. I think it might've been Grand Island or Kearney a few years ago. And I was sitting, I actually have like a third cousin that played under you and it, she was there. And this just kind of goes to show you with coaching. And I'm like, this is like, for me, like, this is how, you know, like you do a great thing when you have past players. It was like Barbie young. She's now married Barbie. Um, so she's like, Gutchel. yeah, Gutchel. Uh, she, yeah, distant cousin of mine. And so they were all sitting there at the table, like her and all of her past teammates out there sharing all of their rings and having like, it was just, it was a really fun experience just to be in there and listening to them and just all their old stories and the fact that they're all still close and together. And they were all like, they're all intelligent women. They're very successful. Well, 
Yeah, and, and the, the part that could be lost there, when Title IX came in, it not only gave women the opportunity and the right to compete, it gave them the opportunity to have a network of close people. Because prior to that, they didn't have that. So once you're on a team, and once you've worked through things, you're always on that team. Those people, when they get together, you know, they, there's, it's not awkward. They, yeah. they don't have to take time learning who the other person is. They, they had to work things through things uh, together. Nancy Colson, we just did a podcast with three uh, players who played right after Title IX at Nebraska, and we haven't uh, edited it yet, but she makes this point that it was so different for her playing college sport because everyone she knew didn't play college sport. And so when she was in the locker room, she'd be talking with these other women who would share with her what courses to take, what professors not to take, uh, sharing all kinds of things. She had a network and that network continues. And uh, I, I'm, uh, there are so many players that played at Nebraska from other areas that end up living uh, in the Lincoln, Omaha area. And I, I think it's because, uh, because of that network, because they did something, they experienced something that changed their life and they enjoy spending time together. Yeah. And it was, uh, and, and men had that opportunity from the early part of the 20th century. It only began for women, um, you know, 72 years later. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Um, okay, coach, well, I'll kind of wrap you up so I don't keep you all morning. But so I always like, I always feel like I always get my content when I'm listening to a podcast or reading a book. So what are you currently reading? Boy, that's that's a good question. Um, I I probably listen to a couple podcasts a day. Okay. And um, one is uh, called Hidden Brain, uh, that is just wonderful. On, uh, and it's it's not as um, scientific as it might sound, but it's really about motivation and how people operate and. Uh, uh, I, uh, so I'll listen to three or four podcasts. I listen to the Daily, which is the New York Times, which is really more current event oriented. I probably glance at four or five newspapers a day. Uh, I look at the uh, Lincoln Journal Star, the Omaha World Herald, the Coloradoan, the New York Times, um, Washington Post, uh, and there are certain writers that I will pick up on. Uh, in terms of books, uh, I have about five books by my desk. The, the, there's a book of short stories by George Saunders, who's probably considered maybe the best short story writer in the country today. I've got a book on natural history that talks really about um, various animals throughout the country. I, I'm I mentioned the Fox family below us. I'm, I, 
I'm, I'm just intrigued with that because they, they have eight kits. Four of them are all black. I'd never seen oh. a black fox before. Me either. And, and I thought, well, is, is this going to change? And so I got and started to uh, review it, and no, no, about one in every ten foxes is black. And in Fort Collins, love them. I guess there's a, there are quite a few of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll do those things. I, I, even when I was coaching, I, while I would read some things about volleyball, most of it was in other arenas, and I would try to apply it to volleyball. Mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to see what was happening, spend a good part of the day uh, uh, on most days either making notes for something that I might want to write about in the future or going back through things I've written and have edited and trying to figure out um, where where should I send this. Uh, I've got a, uh, a, a, a long type of prose poem called River Stories, uh, that is based on actual events that have happened uh, on rivers and some of them in Nebraska where something significant happened. I try to stay out of John Cook's way. <laughs> yeah, let him do his own thing. Yeah, no, John, John, John is such a, a wonderful gift for Nebraska. He's, uh, he, uh, he, a lot of this isn't, isn't um, hard. It's hard to figure out. It's he, he just works so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he works every bit as hard at it today as he did when he became the Nebraska coach 22 years ago. So, um, you know, he, there, you always make mistakes, but in the end, if you outwork other people or work as, as hard as you possibly can, you're likely to have good results and you're likely to be consistent. And um, it's certainly fun to watch uh, that program. I I certainly wouldn't want to take on the challenges that coaches have today with uh, the NIL. Oh yeah. Transfer portal. A million dollars to come play for them. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't imagine the team building challenges you're really fortunate, really, in, in a way that you aren't going to have to deal with that with your team. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're not likely to have somebody come in and say, we're going to offer you $50,000 and your other players don't get anything. Yeah. So you might, ha- you might be able to work out something with something in town that players receive, but that, sh- that makes team building much harder. Agree. And uh, and you know what your players are working toward. Most of them are hoping that they can find a good fit. Yep. After two years at McCook, and they don't even know what it will be when they come in. It it. Uh, I've seen people uh, saw Libro go from Western Nebraska Community College to uh, Creighton. That was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen. Uh, Tisha Delaney, who was set for us uh, the first year we went to a Final Four and played in a national championship, was from a community college in Missouri, and uh, just tough as nails. That's that's not 
the uh, necessarily the goal. The goal is fit. Can they go somewhere where they can continue the development as a as a student and hopefully find a place for them in volleyball? Yep. Yeah, it's more or less just finding, you know, that place to continue their career and, and their education. So, okay, coach, to end it, if I asked you to give me one quote off the top of your head, what would it be? The, the quote, the quote is in the, the book, Talent and the Secret Life of Teams. Okay. And the, 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 um, the quote is, there are, there are two ways of being creative. One can sing and dance or one can create an environment in which singers and dancers flourish. Ooh. And so, you know, when you, when you transition from being a former player to a coach, you're making, you're no longer, it's no longer about you singing and dancing. It's about creating an environment where singers and dancers flourish. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Awesome. Yeah, I, I had a note here. We are creating a, a hot house for learning. And uh, people that understand what a greenhouse is will understand what a hot house is. Yeah. Yeah. Start all the way from the seeds. Um. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Coach, for your time and all the all the words. I feel like I could probably listen to this every day and get something new from it. Well, thank you, and, and good luck with your team. Yes. Good oh. luck with the podcast. Good luck. Uh, good luck if you get out there at Heritage Hills and you're in the back nine. <laughs> right when it's not windy. I need a. I need to work on my golf game a little bit more. So. Yeah, this has been an incredibly windy spring. Yes, it but is. I've, I've played that course many times, and it's absolutely in one of my one of my most favorite courses in Nebraska to play. It's it's um, uh, it's it's a carnival ride in the back <laughs> on the on the back nine uh, because there is if you make the mistake of looking over the edge, you're going to be in real trouble. How about that? That was a solid episode. I I don't know. I'm still in fangirl stage, even though that was like two weeks ago when I did this episode. I just now finished editing. I don't even know if I could say it's editing because I don't really know what I'm doing. I just saw a YouTube thing about removing and cutting audio, and then I just like splurged them because, as you guys know, if you listened, there was a few little uh, like technical difficulties there at the very end no idea what happened um you only can grow from your mistakes right but that was awesome i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say that right now that was pretty cool i apologize that i sounded like a 14 year old going to a taylor swift concert for the first time super exciting to have terry on this podcast coaching caffeine and comedy um but i don't know if you guys if you if you're a coach even if you're not a coach Read his books. I'm going to put those titles in the <clears throat> the comments below or like where that little area is that I can type some stuff. They're really good books. They're great. I love them. And it was all because I read one of those that I just, you know, I kind of started following Terry and his journey and his coaching and really great guy and has a lot, 
has a lot of wise words to say. But anyways, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Coaching Caffeine and Comedy. And I'm your host, Haley Kobza. Yeah.